So over the course of this retreat so far, we've mentioned that the overall arc of the practice, the movement within the Four Noble Truths, is from clinging to release. In other words, from dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, to happiness, ease, peace, and freedom. So I just wanted to check, now we're in day six of the retreat, how is that arc going? And I'm guessing that you might not be abiding consistently in calm and clarity, but probably most of you have experienced at least some moments, some degree of more calm, quiet, and so on. And Julie and I have definitely been hearing firsthand the new understandings, the new insights that have been developing in a actually relatively short time. So alongside these moments of ease, no doubt also there have at times been moments of non-ease. And perhaps more obviously today when we started to bring mindfulness very directly to the mind. And in the relational practice this afternoon, we began to pay closer attention to the clinging aggregates of perception and volitional formations and to see very directly how the mind takes the raw data of sense contact and feeling tone and interprets it with perceptions of all kinds and then constructs thought worlds that usually, when there's no mindfulness, we step into and inhabit as if they were reality rather than something that we ourselves had actually manufactured, fabricated. Now, this whole process wouldn't be an issue if the stories we tell ourselves were benign, if the realities we concocted were beneficial. But again, as many of you have been reporting, many of the thought patterns that we get caught in are painful. And even though we might be able to recognize intellectually on some level that we're doing this to ourselves a lot of the time, often that intellectual understanding isn't enough to help the pattern release. So tonight I wanted to talk about some of the afflictive thought patterns that do seem to be very common and that sadly occur in almost all of the communities that I teach in. And to do this, as I said, I'll be using the template of the two wings to awakening that I introduced the other night of wisdom and compassion. And just to say up front, this is a huge area to try to talk about in one short Dharma talk. So I'm going to keep it focused just on two particular painful mental patterns and I'm going to work with just those two and give some general antidotes so that then hopefully you might see how those same strategies can be applied to whatever specific patterns you might be working with that are common for you. So the two afflictive mental patterns I want to talk about tonight are first, the very common, almost a syndrome Self-beliefs about not being good enough, not being worthy, not having what it takes, not getting it right, not measuring up, and so on and so on. 
And for short, I call this lack mind, L-A-C-K, because it's rooted in a sense of lack. And this painful state sometimes shows up on retreat in the practice meetings, whether it's with teachers or small groups. And one way we sometimes see it is as obsessive rehearsing before the meeting, and then agitation, anxiety, and embarrassment during the meeting and then compulsive self-criticism after the meeting. So I hope for that as just one common area where you might recognize that particular pattern showing up in the context of retreat. And the second very common afflictive mental pattern is a, in some ways a variation of lack mind, and it's what we call comparing mind. The very common tendency to assess oneself in relation to other people as being either better than, worse than, or equal to. And this is known as mana in the Buddha's teachings, M-A-N-A. And the symptoms include being constantly aware of what other people are doing and hyper-aware of ourselves and what we're doing in comparison. And often that awareness is accompanied by an inner monologue about how well or how badly we're doing relative to those other people. Or sometimes comparing to we ourselves based on our experiences at previous retreats. And pretty obviously comparing mind doesn't only show up on retreat. It basically shows up, well, anywhere there are other people. So in our families, in our workplaces, our communities, our neighborhoods, our sanghas. So again, I'm going to focus on just these two and then bring the antidotes in the form of wisdom and compassion. So coming back to this first pattern that I'm calling lack mind, it's that tendency to approach everything from this sense of not being good enough or not having enough or somehow being fundamentally flawed. And this is an example of the sankhara, the formations that we were exploring this afternoon. A volitional formation that we ourselves create, but then through our clinging to it and identifying with it, and our taking it personally, inhabit it as if it was actual reality. And this misperception stops us from seeing clearly. It keeps us locked in a small sense of me, isolated and disconnected from the human beings around us. And early on in my own practice, lack mind was something that I became very aware of. And back then, I believed that it was something that was unique to me. It was my specific family, my social conditioning, my defective personality. And I also believe that by contrast, everyone else had it all together. Everyone else was fundamentally well-balanced and living blissfully free of even the slightest trace of neurosis. So you might hear in that that tendency to personalize and solidify. And Later, when I started to come into the teaching role and I heard so many people describing similar struggles, 
I started to get a sense of, sadly, just how common this lack mind is. So even not that long ago, I, I taught a series of classes exploring afflictive mind states and ways to transform them. And in the first of a, a multi-class series, I invited people to, as a written exercise, come up with a list in relation to anxieties that were common for them. So one was a list of anxieties that often came up in daily life. The other was a list of anxieties that came up in relation to Dharma practice. Then I collected all of these lists anonymously and typed them up into a single document. And if you'd asked me beforehand to guess what kind of things people might feel anxious about, I, I probably could have guessed. But when I saw the actual lists and the actual words and how many of them there were as I was typing them up, it was poignant, even painful, because the same themes kept recurring over and over and over. And just that single phrase, not good enough, appeared multiple times from multiple people. And then there were multiple variations of that phrase. Things like not having enough money, not being smart enough, not working fast enough, not being worthy enough. And then the second major theme was around rejection, abandonment and not belonging. So for example, fear of failure. Fear that people won't like me for who I am. Fear of being alone. Fear of being outside a family or tribe. Fear of being found out as a fraud. So possibly some of you might recognize some variations of those thought patterns and beliefs in your own experience. I wanted to share just a few examples from that course just to get a sense of just how common this is keeping in mind that the people who came on that course were self-selected. They were people who were interested in the Dharma, interested in understanding themselves. They were oriented to practice wisdom, wisdom and compassion. And still this sense of unworthiness and fear of rejection was so pervasive. And in the beginning, almost everyone felt like that they were the only ones experiencing these things. So just to normalize how common this lack mind can be. And as I said earlier, one common place it shows up is in relation to the practice meetings. And I wanted to say that because, again, in my own experience, perhaps not so much on an online retreat, but in ordinary retreats, I would notice in myself and then talking to others later how much time I spent rehearsing before the practice meeting. And of course, it's fine to jot down a few points about what you want to say, any questions, but if this turns into hours of ruminating, should I say this, should I say that, is that going to sound intelligent, oh, that might sound stupid, see if you can recognize this as a symptom of lack mind. And rather than keeping your energy in the thoughts, Come down to name or note, okay, rehearsing is like this. Anxiety 
is like this. Anticipation is like this. Lack mind, I see you. It's okay. And even this much is powerful practice because it will also strengthen your capacity to stay present during the meeting too. And then when we're in the actual meeting, we might have a better chance to stay steady with the deeper sankharas, even as they're being activated. So we might be just describing how we're working with the breath, or maybe what's happening in our daily life practice, perhaps the development of the awakening factors. And underneath, we might also notice some flickerings of desire for approval, or a fear of rejection, a wave of irritation and frustration, perhaps a sudden feeling of being six years old. And again, just to normalize it, talking to people, a lot of this can come up. So rather than it being a source of shame, just to see that it's part of our human nature. And again, sometimes in my, based on my own experience, there have been times when I thought that the practice meeting went quite well. And then for some reason I would spend several hours caught in thoughts about, should I really have said that? Or did the teacher really understand what I said? Or were they just pretending? Were they just humoring me? And what about the other people in the group? I probably didn't sound very intelligent. Maybe I sounded a bit weird or pathetic. And again, if this sankara comes up for you at times, just to try to recognize, okay, this is that pattern. Recognize it for what it is. And each time we can recognize it, it takes a little bit of the energy out of it, makes it a little softer. And then we might be able to enter into the meeting and receive the kindness and compassion that's actually being offered by the teacher and often from the other people in the group too. So the close cousin of lack mind is comparing mind. And this was recognized as a source of suffering all the way back in the time of the Buddha, though it has deep historical roots. And the Buddha referred to comparing mind as mana, usually translated as conceit. And as I said, it's that tendency to compare oneself to others as better, worse than, or equal. And all three of these comparings are seen as equally distorted perceptions because they're based on an assumption of a fixed identity, a static personality in ourselves and in others. I want to just mention that although mana is usually translated as conceit, in English the word conceit is usually reserved just for thinking of ourselves as superior to others. But in the Buddha's understanding, thinking oneself as inferior to others is equally a form of conceit. So perhaps the English word conceiving might be a better translation than conceit. Because conceiving has a sense of us doing something with our minds, concocting or constructing or conceptualizing a distorted perception of ourselves and of others. So comparing mind, we can also operate within our own lives, comparing how we used to be in the past with how we are now, or anticipating how we're going to be better in the future than how we are now. 
And both of these carry the wrong view of a fixed identity and the underlying sense that that identity is someone who needs to improve, to get better, to make progress. And sometimes we see that even in the course of one sitting. We might start off with a sense of, right, this is the one where I finally get it. The mind is going to settle There's going to be deep samadhi. The awakening factors will come into play. And is it happening yet? Is it happening yet? How's my calm? Am I concentrated? Am I there yet? Where's that rapture they keep talking about? And their comparing mind is at work. Again, it shouldn't be like this. It should be like how it was before. It should be more like how it's going to be in the future. So this is very different from discernment from clear seeing, from the simple recognition of when skillful states are present and when they're absent. So we don't want to throw the metaphorical baby out with the bathwater. We do want to be able to recognize what's happening as it's happening. This is actually an aspect of right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path, knowing how to release unskillful mental qualities and strengthen skillful ones and this can be done without referring back to a fixed sense of me the one who's supposed to be in control and who has to micromanage this entire project so in the service of right effort the two antidotes that i'd like to bring are grounded in wisdom and compassion so the wisdom wing helps us to see through these distorted perceptions through insight, clearly seeing the truth of how things are. Everything is constantly changing. Nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. And there's no fixed identity at the center of it all. In other words, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, not-self. So to use slightly different language, these three are pointing to the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal. Everything is constantly changing, so it's impermanent. None of it can bring lasting satisfaction. It's imperfect. And none of it is our fault. It's impersonal. And the more deeply we see into these characteristics in relation to these afflictive thought patterns, the more they support ease, happiness, peace, and freedom. So we can apply these three understandings very directly to our deeply conditioned habit minds. First, by by consciously reminding ourselves of the truth of change. So when an afflictive thought pattern comes up, rather than trying to struggle with it, to get rid of it, one option is just to ride it out, knowing that this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because of the truth of change, at some point, the painful state will disappear of its own accord. And this can help soften the grip of trying to control the state or struggling to get rid of it. Often, though, the tendency is to collapse into the afflictive state, and unconsciously, 
to make it feel more solid and more permanent by the way we talk about it in our inner dialogue. I think I mentioned this briefly earlier in the retreat in the context of the past factor of right or wise speech. Because it was quite a turning point in my own practice when I realized that the ethical commitment to right speech included my own inner dialogue and that I actually needed to start applying the same standards of kindness and honesty to my inner speech as to what I said to others. So I started to look more carefully at that inner speech and I started to recognize how often it distorted reality, sometimes by making what psychologists call eternalizing statements. These are statements such as, I'm always anxious. I never experience any calm. I'm constantly getting it wrong. So words such as always and never are symptoms of what's known as absolutist thinking. This is an unhealthy thinking style that psychologists now recognize is often linked to anxiety and depression. And in Buddhist terms, this thinking style is unhealthy because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do happen to notice those kind of words coming up in the mind, when you catch them, you might experiment with changing that internal language to something that's more accurate, more factually true. Rather than, I'm always anxious, it might be something like, I have a tendency to feel anxious in certain circumstances. Or rather than, I never experience any calm. It might be more honest just to say, well, I haven't had much experience of calm or tranquil states in my practice yet. Or I'm constantly getting it wrong. might be, I sometimes feel that my practice isn't going as deeply as I'd like it to. So hopefully you hear the difference when there's that sort of absolutist blanket statement that makes things permanent, as opposed to allowing some space for things to change. Now sometimes when I suggest this to students, they try to convince me that I'm wrong and that their particular painful patterns have always been there. They're constantly present now and they will definitely be there into the future forever. And so one tool that's sometimes helpful to challenge this misperception is, okay, if we just say, well, maybe it's there all the time, but it's probably changing in intensity. And we might rate the intensity of the afflictive feeling on a scale of 0 to 10. So if we were to take anxiety as an example again, 10 might be a full-blown panic attack and 0 might be completely, utterly calm. And so if I ask people to check throughout the day to notice on a scale of 0 to 10 the level of intensity, they pretty quickly realize that the intensity is constantly changing. I said constantly, I meant often. See how easy it is to fall into that habit of eternalizing. So the anxiety is continuously changing. It's often much lower than they might otherwise have noticed. 
because of the mind's inherent negativity bias. So using the scale of 0 to 10 can help train us to acknowledge when those times when the anxiety is reduced or maybe even gone completely for some moments. And then we start to let that in to the body and the heart-mind to rewire or reset the nervous system to know, to recognize how it feels so that non-anxiety can become more of the default setting. Now the second of the three characteristics, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, imperfection, is also a powerful ally in reducing the power of afflictive thought patterns. Even though dukkha can be a hard one to accept, this is because not only of our own individual conditioning that resists it, but our collective social and societal conditioning too. Internally and externally, many of us are driven to try to make everything better or even perfect. And most of us tend to put a lot of energy and effort in trying to control our external circumstances, trying to make all the conditions around us and even the people around us be exactly the way we want them to be. And there can be a deeply unconscious assumption that if I can just do X, Y, or Z, then everything will be okay, and then I'll be happy. If I can just get it right, then I'll be happy. If I can just perfect this, then I'll be happy. Yet in spite of all that effort, not many of us can say that we've experienced the lasting happiness we keep hoping for. Of course, there are moments of happiness, sometimes many moments of intense happiness. But overall, because of impermanence, these don't last. So suggesting that we acknowledge unsatisfactoriness doesn't just mean giving up completely, resigning ourselves to being driven by these painful emotion states because, well, it's sulduka anyway. That would be apathy rather than true acceptance. So developing a more balanced relationship to our afflictive mind states comes as our practice matures. We start to be able to look non-judgmentally at our underlying motivations to discern what we might be able to change and to accept what we can't, including our so-called imperfections. So when it comes to afflictive states, we need to pay attention to any resistance to them any expectation that they shouldn't be happening, they're wrong, they're bad, they're a problem to be got rid of as soon as possible. And sometimes, sadly, the practice can even reinforce that belief. So sometimes people will say to me, I've been meditating for six months now and I got angry with my 11-year-old son yesterday. What have I done wrong? <laughs> so to notice those kind of expectations or assumptions and instead orient to the understanding we are human beings with vulnerable human bodies, vulnerable human hearts, vulnerable human minds. We are susceptible to greed, hatred and delusion at times. As far as I know, no human being alive is completely and utterly immune from these energies. 
So even though we might understand this in theory, many of us have the tendency to take our afflictive mind states very personally, to see them as our own unique shortcomings, weakness, unique neurosis, which again, in terms of insight practice, is a distortion. So now we come to the third of the three characteristics, which is anatta, or not-self. The understanding that everything we experience is an impersonal process. It's not happening to a fixed, solid self who dwells at the center of the universe, even though it often feels that way. So again, this one is not so easy to understand intellectually. So I'll just touch into what happens when we relate to lack mind and comparing mind without any understanding of not-self. So again, we can look at our inner language and the way we talk to ourselves and at times see how often this language reveals the tendency to take, these, to take ownership of these states. And we unconsciously re reinforce them by turning them into an identity. And so again, in my own practice, I started paying attention to I am statements. And I was amazed to discover how often when I made these pretty definite I am statements in my own mind, if I looked at what I was saying, it was almost never true. At best, it was partly or temporarily true, but it was never the definitive statement that I was taking on. So just some random examples. We tell ourselves, well, I'm an angry type, or I'm a victim of workplace bullying, or I'm a highly realized meditator. Now, all of those statements might have some partial truth. But when they're expressed that way, they become prisons that keep us stuck in relating to the world through in just one way. So again, if we do recognize some of these very definitive I am statements, we might play with challenging that kind of self-reinforcing language and change how we express them to allow a little more nuance, a little more subtlety. And even if only internally, this can help to soften the identification. So for example, instead of constantly telling ourselves, I'm an angry type, we might say, yeah, under certain conditions, I do have a tendency to experience irritation and frustration. Or instead of saying, I'm a victim of workplace bullying, that might eventually become in a highly toxic work environment, I found it hard to stand up for myself. Likewise, I'm a highly realized meditator might become, right now in this meditation session, the practice feels to have some momentum. So again, hopefully you hear the difference. And there's many different ways we could change the language, but the invitation is to play with it, to explore it. We're not negating the understanding that there is a person who at times experiences anger, fear, or success. But we're trying to minimize the tendency to collapse our whole identity into that one statement by using more subtle language that allows for the truth of anicca, dukkha, anatta.
So, so far, I've mostly been exploring the wisdom wing. So using the lenses of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of not-self to help, in a way, see through these afflictive thought patterns. There are times, though, when these thought patterns get such a grip on us that the mind just doesn't feel to be able to make any headway whatsoever. And usually this is because there's something in the heart that needs more attention. So at these times we might need to bring in the compassion wing to work very directly with whatever painful emotions are keeping that afflictive thought pattern locked in place. So I talked quite a bit about compassion the other night, but just to again acknowledge that for many people compassion and particularly self-compassion can be very challenging. Just the idea of self-compassion can bring up difficult reactions for some people. So being able to see beyond our habitual conditioning is the beginning of wisdom and it's also the gateway to compassion. And yet self-aversion and self-loathing seem to be very widespread these days. So as we try to orient towards compassion, we might need quite a lot of patience as we start to move into what for many of us is pretty unfamiliar terrain. So just to normalize how challenging this can be, a few years ago I read a short paper by Paul Gilbert, a psychologist who works in the field of self-compassion. And he wrote about the challenges that many people face when they're trying to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. And I wanted to share with you just a little bit from this paper because it gives a sense of how difficult it can be to cultivate self-compassion. He says, Commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. An exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So to begin with then, the work of cultivating self-compassion might include learning how to relate very patiently to some of our deepest psychological conditioning. And sometimes it can feel in the beginning that we would rather do anything than actually turn our attention towards our own distress and meet it with kindness. So sometimes when I work with students and explore their resistance to self-compassion, they sometimes tell me that they can't find any phrases that feel true or authentic. And so sometimes we'll play around together to see, well, what kind of phrases might make sense? 
And in one case, the person was at first so resistant even to the idea of self-compassion that the phrases that we came up with sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to eventually move in the direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So you can hear this kind of really keeping it at arm's length, but that's a safe distance, and maybe that's where we start. And in that case, the person said those phrases three times every morning when they first woke up, just as a way of very gently orienting in that direction. So we can be creative with the phrases that we use, or we don't use phrases at all. Again, because this is a creative practice, we really can give ourselves permission to find our own way in. And sometimes a more embodied approach, as Julie was leading us in the other day, when we recognize some kind of afflictive thought pattern, just to put a hand on the heart or the belly or the cheek as an embodied reminder to pause, to breathe, to breathe in and out with what's difficult can help soothe the nervous system. There is so much more that I could say about all of this, but out of compassion, I don't want to let this be too long of a talk. So just for this evening to acknowledge that sometimes people have reservations about developing self-compassion because they see it as self-indulgent and they fear that it might make them self-centered. But when self-compassion is supported by wisdom, it becomes a powerful gift to the world. And although in the context, context of a silent retreat, it might seem like we're practicing compassion mostly for our own benefit, the more we do this for ourselves, the more possible it becomes to meet the suffering of our own families, of our communities, of the world with this same compassion. And over time, our practice shifts from being primarily self-centered to including others more and more fully and eventually not to be self-centered but to become non-centered because the distinction between self and other dissolves. So later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion became more explicit in the development of the bodhisattva ideal. And the bodhisattva is a being who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this ideal resonates for us personally at this time, we might still connect with the underlying understanding that all of the effort we're making here is of benefit not only to we ourselves, but everyone we come into contact with. So I'd like to close with a few lines from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And this is a Tibetan text that apparently His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. Now, it's a whole book so I'll just read a few lines that convey the flavor of this aspiration of compassion. And some of you have heard this passage many times, 
before, but just see if you can hear it tonight with new ears. So it says, May I be a protector for those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living being be completely cleared away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.